come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode 161 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here for you is going to be my first winter year end that I'm doing. And this is going to be number 14 overall. And for this one, I am going to try to find as many winter-based horror movies. I'm going to try to do it for both featured reviews. Not always going to be able to be the case, but this one does work out. For the first one is going to be Black Mountainside. That is one that came out a few years ago. Didn't watch it when it first hit. Heard some good things, so I checked it out. And then I also have that paired up with a screener that I got to watch of The Leech. This is a new movie that features Graham Skipper and Jeremy Gardner. And then also as mini-reviews, I decided to knock out one last Italian horror film since I watched that at the end of November, and that is Curse of the Blood Ghouls. And then I also have another screener that I'm watching of Feed Me, and then I gave a rewatch to You Won't Be Alone as a 2022 watch. Now, I don't have anything else for this little section of it, but let me get you over to my monthly review. And for my monthly recap of everything that I watched for November of 2022, I watched 31 total films. 22 of them were in horror. Seven of those are 2022 releases. And my percentage of horror is 70.97%. Now, the horror movies that I watched during the month are The Nightmare Before Christmas, Sleepless, Dark Glasses, Beetlejuice, Satan Slaves 2, Communion, Manhattan Baby, Bloodlines, A Jersey Devil Curse, Barren Blood, VHS 99, The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, X, Gretel and Hansel, The Menu, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, Dante's Inferno, The Witch's Curse, You Are Not My Mother, Violent Shit 2, Black Mountainside, Curse of the Blood Ghouls, The Leech, and Feed Me. Now seven countries were represented, that is the United States, Italy, Indonesia, Canada, Ireland, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Now, the 2022 watches are Dark Glasses, Satan Slaves 2, Communion, Bloodlines, The Jersey Devil Curse, VHS 99, The Menu, The Leech, and Feed Me. Now, my oldest watch is Dante's Inferno from 1911. My average year is 2001. 
Now, the highest rated are The Nightmare Before Christmas, X, and The Menu are all tied at a 9. My lowest rated is Violent Shit 2 at a 4. The average rating is a 7.3. Now, not on this feed is Gretel and Hansel is on Movie Club Challenge for over on the podcast Under the Stairs. And then Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 is a T-Puts Russian Roulette franchise, as I got to talk to Duncan about that one. And then the other one is featured on his feed as well over there. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of comparison here then for my Novembers in a, a conjunction with other Novembers is that this was my tied for my highest for new films released for that year. As this in 2020, I watched seven. And it's actually funny, as 2021 and 2019, I watched six. And then in 2018, I watched three. And that gives me 29 films released in that year in horror that I've watched overall in November. Now, for this year is one of my lower totals at 22. The lowest was 2018 at 17, and then I had 24 in 2019, 26 in 2021, and 27 in 2020. I've watched 116 horror films in the month of November. Now, for total films, this is my lowest that I've ever had at 31. Still made my goal there, though. Now, in 2018 and 2020, I watched 32. 2019, I watched 33, and then in 2021, I watched 38. I've watched 166 total films in the month of November. Now, for average year, this one is tied with last year at 2001, actually in 2019 as well, as my highest average year. And then it looked like in 2020, I watched the average year there was 1999, and then the earliest was 2018 at 1994. My average year overall for November is 1999. Now, for average rating, this is actually my lowest at a 7.3. The highest was 2018 at a 7.8, and then 2019 and 2021 was a 7.7. 2020 was a 7.5. My average rating for everything I watch in November is a 7.6 overall. Now, for percentage of horror, this one is actually kind of hovering right there in the middle at 70.97%. The lowest was 2018 with 53.13%, and then it looked like in 2021 last year was a 68.42%. 2019, 72.73%, and then 2020 was an 84.83%. So my percentage of horror in November overall is a 69.92%. So then yearly totals for what I have so far in November, and actually I mean for 2022 overall, 82 watches for movies released this year. This so far is on pace to actually do better than I have lately as I've already watched more this year than I did last year, which was 74 And then 2020 was 85, 2018 was 87, and then 2019 was the highest at 98. Still trying to see if I can get up to the 100 mark to break those records. Definitely am doing well overall regardless. I've watched 425 movies that were released in respective years total. Now this year is going to be better than 2018 as I only need to watch two more movies. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to break any of my other years though for horror movies that is. As 2021, I had 360. 2020 I had 362 and then 2019 was 450. I have watched 1,784 horror movies since I started keeping track. Now for total films, there's some numbers that I could potentially break here is I've got 409 total. 2018 I had 426, 2020 I had 432, last year I had 447 and the highest was 518. So I've already actually eclipsed the record that I needed to do for 365 for this year, but I've watched 2,232 total movies since keeping track. 
Now for average year, this one is actually bringing my total down. This is the earliest at 1998. The last three years were 1999 and 2018 was actually 2000. So I'm sitting on 1999 as the average year total. And then for my average rating for the year, this one is actually kind of falling in the middle at 7.4. Now, 2018 was 7.5. The highest was 2019 at 7.6. Then 2020 was 7.3. Last year was 7.5. The average rating of everything I've watched is 7.5. Now, percentage of horror, this one is my second lowest. The lowest was 2018 at 72.07. This year is 74.57 right now. And then I had last year was 80.54%. Then the year before that, 83.8%. The highest was 2019 at 86.87%. My percentage of horror, though, is 79.57%. I think that's all I needed to get you up to speed with here, so let me get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini-reviews. And I would like to say thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review is going to be one that has a couple different titles. On IMDb, it's listed as Curse of the Blood Ghouls. It's also on Letterboxd as The Slaughter of the Vampires. Regardless, this goes by the original title of La Strage de Vampiri. This is from 1962. This is directed and written by Roberto Mari. This stars Walter Brandy, Dieter Eppler, and Graziella Granada. This is a horror film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, in 19th century Austria, a newlywed couple in an old castle soon are targeted by a savage vampire who is hell-bent on destroying both their lives when he centers his main focus on the bride. Complications ensue for everyone involved. So this is another one that I hadn't heard about until looking for horror movies from Italy. This is another one that helps me with my Trek to the Twos, being from 1962. And this is also, as I was kind of bringing up, one of those ones where it has a few different titles, which is interesting. And I knew from the original one that I saw of Slaughter of the Vampires that this was going to be dealing with that specific creature. Other than that, I came into this one blind. So I want to start is that this doesn't have the most complex story. If anything, it feels like a condensed version of Dracula. What is different here is that we introduced a vampire as... They flee from a mob and then him taking up residence in the house of his next victim. The vampire focuses on the new wife of Luis, who is portrayed by Granada, before turning his sights on other women. Dracula turns his attention eventually to Mina and had multiple brides, so we kind of are dealing with that there. So I don't want to hold this against the movie, but that's just something that I felt and wanted to bring it up here. So what is interesting about this movie is that it does have that gothic feel as well. The mansion isn't a castle, but the costumes of the characters fit that, as this is still in that, you know, Victorian-type era. We also see that we need horse and carriage to get around. I think this all fits in the confines. And I also think that it makes sense when Wolfgang, who is portrayed by Brandy, who is the marquee in this, and being the one married to Luis, relays to Dr. Nietzsche, who is portrayed by Luigi Botzella. The events and what he thinks the doctor doesn't find it too outrageous he doesn't fully come on board and what i mean here is that wolfgang doesn't fully come on board to the different things that the doctor is telling him but part of this is due to waiting before they can act to bring up the setting one last time it allows a lot of hiding places within the cellar for the vampires which is terrifying that they're already inside 
This does seem to be ignoring the lore that they need to be invited in. My guess would be it's either too problematic or due to having a party with like an open invitation of sorts to cover there. So there isn't much more to go into for the story. So let me take this to the acting. I thought that Brandy was fine as Wolfgang. He was in line to walk where he is, you know, worrying about his wife as well as trying to keep the modern belief that vampires don't exist. I think he does work there. Now, Eppler is good with his look for the vampire. What is interesting is that he must fear the mobs while also looking menacing. Granada is gorgeous. She is solid in her performance as well. I liked Botzella along with Gina, Jimmy, and the rest of the cast. No one is great, but they all work for what they need in their roles. So last thing to bring up here would be the filmmaking. I would say this is shot well. The transfer of this print helps making it look so crisp. They don't do much with the camera movement or shots that are standard. There is soft focus that seemed to be used at times. That did stick out. There weren't a lot in the way of effects, but it did make me chuckle that you could at times when seeing a vampire have their fake teeth in behind their lips and it makes their cheeks bulge out. I'm not holding it against this, just something that I found to be kind of charming. There seemed to be a limited budget as they don't have blood. Other than that, I would say that the soundtrack was fine without necessarily standing out as well. So in conclusion, this isn't a bad vampire film by any stretch. The biggest gripe that I have here is that it doesn't do anything necessarily new and it makes it slightly boring for me. The issue is just that I've seen movies before and after do things better than they do here. This is made well enough though. The acting is solid. There aren't any glaring issues outside of what I've already said about it. You can skip this one only because there are movies out there that do it better, unfortunately. If not, this is just a solid enough vampire film for me. So my rating here for Curse of the Blood Ghouls is going to be a 5.5 out of 10. Then up next for you, I have Feed Me. This is from here in 2022. This is directed by Adam Leader and Richard Oakes. It was written by Adam Leader, and it looks like they both of the directors came up with the story. Now this stars Neil Ward, Christopher Mulvin, and Hannah LaRashid. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being, following the death of his wife, a broken man spirals into an abyss of night terrors and depression. He finds himself in the home of a deranged cannibal who convinces him to take his own life in the most horrific way imaginable. So this is a movie that I got the chance to see when one of the co-directors reached out to me with a screener link. It was Oakes who also helped come up with the stories I was saying. What I saw looked interesting, so I figured I would give it a watch, and I love to support independent cinema when I can, and this is one that I came into blind as well, outside of what I've already relayed. So this is really a character study of our two main characters of Lionel and Jed. Now, the former is portrayed by Ward, while Jed is portrayed by Mulvin. Now, I want to start with the latter one, since the punishment he endures is the focus. Jed is struggling due to losing his wife. It seems like she killed herself and he can't understand why. It sinks him into depression. He sees as a way for him to come to terms with things around him by killing himself. What I like about his character is that he has a change. He sees Lionel works with disabled individuals and it helps with his sense of worth. Jed even befriends this man who is eating him. He doesn't blame him, it seems like. I thought this was a good performance from Malvin and the character arc for Jed for sure. And now to our other star of Lionel. He's like a Jeffrey Dahmer type person. And just so I should also point out, he is portrayed by Ward. Now the cannibal aspects is part of it, but he's also awkward. Lionel is lonely. He has tastes that make it worse in wanting to eat human flesh. 
He craves to have people around him. Becoming friends with Jed helps, even though he is eating him. Lionel also seeks a partner. He doesn't realize that Alex, who in this is portrayed by Al Rashid, is interested in him. And she thinks that he might be gay with how he words the issue that he's having with Jed. I thought this was kind of a bit of levity to a movie that's such heavy with its ideas like suicide. Ward does well in playing this awkward character who is scary at times, and I want to give credit to him as well. Now, I'm not sure there's much more to the story that I want to go into, so I'll shift over to the acting outside of our leads. Al Rashid is good as this woman who is trying to get to know Lionel despite his quirks. Now, we also have Samantha Loxley, who is portraying the deceased wife of Jed. Now, she's also the voice of reason for him as he sees her in different um, like visions and everything like that. Now, there's two police officers of Nadia Lehman and Anto Sharp that also add comedy. I'd say that across the board, the acting is solid. So I'm going to finish up, then it'll be the filmmaking. Where I want to start is with the tone. I'm not always the biggest fan of comedy horror. I think for the most part, it works here. There were times where it took me out, but the comedy here comes from how absurd things are happening that we are seeing. And it's also a dark comedy, so it's kind of just the things that we're seeing are so kind of morbid that it also kind of makes it funny at times. I also want to give credit to Lionel's house as a setting, as it's so gross and just made me feel uncomfortable. Other than that, I said the cinematography was good, as were the effects. Those made me cringe while removing the limbs from Jed, so I will give credit there for sure. There is good blood and gore. Other than that, I'd say the soundtrack and design worked here. In conclusion, this is a solid movie that I'm glad that I got to see. There is heavy subject matter here, and I think that adding a bit of levity makes it work better. We get two good performances from our leads and the rest of the cast push to where they end up. I like what they do with the effects. The blood and gore look good. It even made me cringe at times. Other than that, I would say this is a well-made movie overall. I can't recommend this to everyone, so I'd say that if you're into gore, check this out. Especially if you like a bit of dark comedy. My rating here for Feed Me is going to be a 7 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have You Won't Be Alone. This is from 2022. This is written and directed by Goran Stavoleski. This stars Numi Rapace, Elise Englert, and Carlotta Okada. This is a drama horror film that is a co-production between Australia, United Kingdom, and Serbia. This is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being, In an isolated mountain village in the 19th century Macedonia, a young girl is kidnapped and then transformed into a witch by an evil spirit. So this is a movie that if you want to hear a bit more, I will direct you to episode 127, where I did a feature review on this. That was Trek to the Two's number two. And that was paired up with Island of Lost Souls. So I'm not going to go too much into depth here because this is a rewatch for this year. But I'm glad that I waited till the next day to originally get my thoughts down. And I did it again here this time. I like this leaving the theater. But the more that I think about it, the more that I did. is I saw this at the Gateway Film Center originally as well. We have an interesting period piece. We are seeing a witch alter the life of a young woman and then the effects it has on her. There's an interesting commentary that... Navenia learns through this, and she is actually portrayed in this by Sarah Kilimoska. The acting is good across the board. The best performance being Marinka, who is Anna Maria Marinka, who plays Old Maid Maria, who is the witch in this. I also give credit here to Numi Rapace portraying Boslika. 
Now, it feels like we're in an era that it took place in, so that's another thing that's a perk here. The cinematography is great, and the soundtrack fits for what was needed. This is a slow burn, so keep that in mind. Be aware of that, and I don't think that everyone will like this to the point where it could be polarizing. If you like a little bit more meat on the bone for your viewing, then see this one. I stand by what I've said, especially after the second viewing as well. One of the best horror movies that I've seen for 2022. My rating for You Won't Be Alone, I've actually bumped it up now to a 9 out of 10. And that's all I'm going to have for mini-reviews for this week, so let me get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. This is uh, Professor Olson, head of archaeology for U of T, head of field research for the SAA. Francis Monroe, project director. Pleasure to meet you. I'm curious what they told you. They were pretty vague with the details. A week ago, we began unearthing a large object that we think is the roof of a structure that goes down, well, really far. This is the real deal, and we're looking at one of the biggest finds in the past century. The crew will be remembered mm -hmm. for the greatest archaeological find possibly ever. Yeah, right. I like the sound of that. There Cheers. it is, gentlemen. Station 9, come in. Over. Station 9, are you there? Come in, please. Over. Three of our guys are gone. The other two went looking for them. These trucks are headed north. Reservation south. Well, if they're headed north, they're definitely dead. Still feel like shit, eh? Yeah. Even feeling progressively worse throughout the week? Yeah. Someone was sneaking around the outpost last night. I don't know, maybe it was an animal. For Christ's sake, that was no animal. When was the last time you slept? I'm not sure. You're hallucinating. He's here now, listening, watching. He's watching me. Jensen, I can't move without him watching me. I can't move. Calm down. And for my first feature review on this episode is going to be Black Mountainside. This is from 2014. It was written and directed by Nick Stazowski. If I mispronounce your name, I do apologize. And then this stars Shane Turden, Michael Dixon, and Carl Toffelt, while also featuring Mark Anthony Williams, Andrew Moxham, Timothy Lyle, Steve Bradley, Nathaniel Gordon, Bryce McLaughlin, Kelvin Bonanu, Cameron Tremblay, and Fleetwood Addison Stosowaskaja. And that is also Gibson the Cat, by the way, if you were curious. Now, this is a drama horror mystery sci-fi thriller that is from Canada. It is currently set on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... 
At a cold, desolate northmost outpost in Canada, an archaeological discovery is made. A specialist arrives November 1st. Strange things happen. All contact with the outside world is down. So this is a movie that I heard about through podcasts. Seeing when this came out, it was in an era where I wasn't necessarily into watching new horror as of yet. I did hear good things, so it went on a list of ones to check out. I am now doing this as part of my winter episodes on Journey with a Cinephile. As you can tell, it's on here, as I like to do this for December. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes, and I'll start with our director. He has two works, both are in horror. This is the first one that I've seen, and in 2018, he also made Archons. That looks interesting. Now, as a writer, he has the same two. Then moving to our actors, I'll start with Turden. He has four credits. Three are in genre. I've only ever seen this one. His first though was Adam and Evil from 2004. He was also in She Who Must Be Burned from 2015. I have not heard of the other two. Then on to Dixon. He's been in 14 films. Now five are in horror. I've only ever seen this one. He was also in R.L. Stein's Haunting Hour first. Then he was in this. And then from there, he's been in Wrecker Death Truck, Archons, and Conversion Therapist from 2019. Then lastly, I'll look at Toffelt, who has been in two things. This is the only one in horror and that I have seen from him as well. So, I think that that synopsis that I gave previously does well in recapping the movie. Just to flesh some things out a bit more, we have Jensen, portrayed by Turden, who is the one who runs the radio, and he kind of seems like he's in charge. Now, he works with Francis Manro, who is portrayed by Toffelt. There's also Robert Michael Giles, portrayed by Williams, Dr. Richard... Andervis, portrayed by Moxham, there's Drew McNaughton, portrayed by Lyle, and Stephen Wells, portrayed by Bradley. Now, the specialist who arrives is Professor Piers Olsen, portrayed by Dixon. Now, this does well in establishing that most everyone gets along. If anything, Jensen seems to be the one who rubs Robert the wrong way. They get along well enough, though. There is a structure that is found along with some pottery. The problem, though, is that there are markings on it matching more with Mesoamerican. Now, with the layer of soil that it's found, they weren't this far north during the Ice Age. It also seems to match Mayan or Aztec markings. Pierce tries to make sense of this with Francis. Now things take a turn when members of this team get sick. We get a scene where a member's arm looks like it has a pulsating tumor. They amputate it to save them. And then Drew and Steven are the first two that are acting weird. Now the tensions rise when Jensen makes a call to get supplies that should be arriving a few days later. The radio goes down and no one comes through. The men start to distrust each other as well. Now we have two indigenous workers that also disappear. At first they think that they headed back to the reservation, but the tracks are going in the opposite direction. To complicate things even more, we see a figure that is stalking the camp at night. It is telling the men to do things. No one is sleeping, and that could explain this. It becomes a fight for survival and avoiding going insane in these remote parts. So let's leave my recap and introduction to the characters. Where I'll start is the glaring similarities to the thing. We have an all-male cast being isolated in a frozen area. This doesn't feature people becoming an alien, but there is a mistrust of each other. Part of that is due to lack of sleep. We have people descending into madness and doing things that are out of the norm. What we are getting here is something different from that classic. I did want to set that up here. So now with that out of the way, I love the setting of this movie, even if it's something that's been done already. There is something about isolating our characters this far from civilization. You add in that it's cold and the chances of just walking away aren't good. Another thing I should mention is that this is borrowing something else for whatever happening here could be an illness. There is this idea of trying to survive and possibly infecting others. Having our characters be stuck adds a moral dilemma of it dying with the characters or surviving to infect humanity. This movie also just feels cold. 
Now, what I'm going to shift over would be, I love learning about history. My lore started with, you know, Egyptians and then shifted to Chinese history, as well as South and Latin American. What I like here is that we have our crew found what looks to be a small temple or a structure of sorts that doesn't fit. The layer of soil makes it near the end of the Ice Age. Piers points out that people did not set up civilizations yet. What makes it even weirder is that the markings point to things found with the great civilizations farther south. There is this entity that also appears to our characters. What I will say is that the markings indicate that the animals were sacred. There is a deer-like thing that they are seeing that could be a god of sorts. That is so eerie that I was intrigued. So then I want to take this over to the idea that this could be either supernatural versus grounded explanation. This is Lovecraftian and cosmic horror. The entity tells one of our characters that they were there when the stars were created, but a name is never given. This thing is cosmically indifferent. This could be what is controlling things and making these characters not only lose their minds, but become sick. Shifting then to the logical, this reminded me of Larry Fessenden's The Last Winter. There could be a bacterium that is frozen in the ice that has melted away due to what we're doing. It could be making them sick. Due to their isolation, it could also be you know breaking them down mentally with cabin fever. I like this movie gives us both explanations, and I personally think that this is supernatural with the potential bacteria making it worse. So that should be enough for the story. So I wanted to flesh out next would be the acting. We have a cast of believable characters. I like that Turdum is almost our Kurt Russell type character. He's a good guy, but he rubs members of his team the wrong way. He is a bit of a capitalist, and he doesn't want to shut down and lose their progress. Dixon is good as the outsider who is the expert. He's also our hero of sorts. I thought that Topfelt, Williams, Moxham, Lyle, and Bradley were all good. Nathaniel Gordon has a good voice as our dear god. There is a limited cast around of those who kind of just fit in for what was needed in like these minor type things. So the last thing to go over would be the filmmaking. I've already gave praise to the setting. I will also include the cinematography. I think this is shot well. We get great establishing shots. This helps to make it feel isolated and cold like it does. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but we get, you know, look to be practical. There is some effective use of shadows to prevent things from being overanalyzed. Other than that, I thought the blood and a bit of gore that we get looked solid. The soundtrack was the last thing here. It doesn't necessarily stand out, but it helped to build the atmosphere. And I also like the voice of the entity as that adds another layer of creepiness on top of it. So then there's a little bit of trivia here that I wanted to share from the movie that I found on the IMDb page. Now, the cast and crew actually lived in the cabins where the film is shot. They had no internet connection or cell service. The cat Gibson belongs to the director as well. So, in conclusion, I think this is a solid film. I like what they're doing with the setting and making it feel isolated. This Lovecraftian cosmic horror vibe that goes along with all this is good. I like there could be a logical explanation to everything as well. The acting is solid. They bring their characters to life. I also thought this is a well-made movie, which adds to that on top of it. Special credit here to the cinematography and the effects. I would recommend giving this one a viewing for sure, especially if the things that I said work for you. So my rating here for Black Mountainside is going to be an 8 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. When we help others, we bring them face to face with God. Do not board up your homes for fear of God's little ones. They are his long lost children, his flock in need of a shepherd.
And for my second feature review on this episode is going to be The Leech. This is from here in 2022. This is written and directed by Eric Pennykoff. This stars Jeremy Gardner, Graham Skipper, and Taylor Stodkey, while also featuring one other person of Rigo Gray. And I should also point out here, this is the only bit of trivia that they have on the IMDb page, is that this was filmed during pandemic over in, I believe, Fort Wayne, Indiana. But this is a comedy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being... A devout priest welcomes a struggling couple into his house at Christmas time. What begins as a simple act of kindness quickly becomes the ultimate test of faith once the sanctity of his home is jeopardized. So this movie that I heard about, I believe thanks to Duncan from the podcast Under the Stairs, things he said about this were some buzzwords for me, like this being a Christmas horror movie. It was also starring Jeremy Gardner and Graham Skipper as well. This went on a list and I was excited to check it out. I got the chance when Justin Cook sent over a screener as Jamie also watches with me as she is a fan somewhat of Gardner and these type of movies as well, at least to an extent. I should actually probably double check that with her, but here we are. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes. I'll start with our director of Pennykoff. He has three credits, all are in genre. He has a short in ABCs of Death 2.5. And he's worked with Gardner as well in a movie called Sadistic Intentions. I've only ever seen this one so far, though. Now, as a writer, he has two works, this and Sadistic Intentions. Now, moving over to our cast, I'll start with Gardner. He's been in 18 things. I've seen seven. In genre, he has 14, and I've watched six of those. Now, the first that I've seen is The Battery, Spring, Bliss, After Midnight, Off Season, and now this. Another one that he's been in that is close to the genre that I actually considered it on my year-end list was Like Me. Then moving over to Skipper, he has 25 works. I've seen five, 18 are in horror. I've seen him in All the Creatures Are Stirring, Bliss, VFW, This, and Scare Package 2. Everything that I've seen from him is in genre as well. Now next would be Statki. Now she has five movies. I've seen two. Both are in horror with After Midnight and Now This. Now she was also in Fingers and Sadistic Intentions, which I've heard of Fingers, not seen that one. I believe Jeremy Gardner is also in that one as well. And lastly is Gray. He has six projects. This is the only one that I've seen. Four of his are in genre, with the first two ones being shorts called Miss Millie and Claustrophobic. Or Claustrophobia, something like that. So, to get into this movie here, there isn't a lot that I need to expand on from the synopsis, but Father David, portrayed by Skipper, is the priest over a struggling parish. There only seems to be a couple people who attend his sermons when we start this, and one of them is Rigo, portrayed by Gray. Now, we learn that David helped him when he was found living in a truck stop bathroom. He now helps with the priest in doing different things for this congregation. Now, things change on this Sunday when David wakes up Terry, portrayed by Gardner, who is sleeping in a pew. Leaving the church, David overhears Terry trying to get his cell phone to work. David offers him to use his car to charge it. He then gives him a ride to the house of his girlfriend. It appears no one is home. David is then forced to practice what he preaches and offers his home to Terry to help. Now, Terry's a rough guy. He smokes, drinks, and even uses cocaine. David wants to help him like he did with Rigo. Now, there is a challenge here for him when Terry takes advantage. He tries to secretly move his girlfriend of Lexi, portrayed by Stotke, in one night. David thinks he knows who she is. There was a woman who gave a confession earlier that day saying that they were pregnant and they didn't know what they wanted to do. Now, David is forced by his conscience to let them stay. 
Now, things are tougher than he expects, though, as they challenge not only his beliefs, but make him question things about himself. David has taken a vow of celibacy and to not drink in excess. The more they're together, the corruption grows within this priest, and things turn violent as Christmas looms. So that's what I'm going to leave my recap for this movie introduction to the characters. Now, where I want to start is that I think we're getting an interesting character study of David here. We see that he's a priest of a struggling church. I like that he's positive in trying to find ways to build up the people that are showing this way. You know, kind of come to this religion here. But this can be seen by using like Rigo to help with music. He also uses social media to entice the younger generation. It isn't working, but I like that it's relevant that this younger generation has fallen out on organized religion currently. David doesn't seem like a bad guy either. Now things change when he meets Terry. He's a corrupting factor here. Terry peer pressures David into doing things like drinking. Lexi, to an extent, does as well. What is interesting is that there's a deeper underlying aspect to this. There's a logical explanation that Terry's just a bad influence. There's also a supernatural angle that Terry could be the devil, or at least a demon of sorts. Him and Lexi hear things that David says, and they pervert it. Why did David meet Rigo in the truck stop bathroom? Was he cruising? There are implications that David is a repressed gay person. Could it be that he needed to stop off to use the bathroom and just saw a person in need? There are two ways to look at almost everything that they are pointing out. I also picked up on that David is a recovering alcoholic. He reveals that he used to smoke when he was in training to be a priest. I think that he had a drinking problem as well that was brought out through Terry. I like there's two ways to read everything and it leaves it up to the audience to decide. Personally, I like to believe that there's a supernatural bit here. This wouldn't work though if not for the acting. Skipper and Gardner are amazing here. They are both independent actors that are just great at becoming characters. I like seeing Skipper as this priest who has the best of intentions, but those can also be the best way to pave the way to hell. As he is taken advantage of, he descends into madness. It is on point. Gardner is also great at being this deadbeat guy as well. They carry the show, and I mean, pretty much the movie itself. Now, that's not meant to be a slight to Stodkey and Garay. They are good at what they need to to push our characters to where they need to end up as well. So now the last thing to go into would be the filmmaking. The cinematography here is good. I like that there are subtle things done with how things are framed as well as lighting. The moment that Terry moves in, there are lights that are flickering. It made me think that this could be supernatural just being an old house. They do well in distorted images when people are drinking. It makes you wonder if what you're seeing is real or not. There's also the strobing light and even a red filter. I think these all add to the atmosphere. Other than that, I'd say that the limited effects that we get are good. There is blood and after effects of things that look real as well for the gore. So the soundtrack also adds something that is needed on top of all of that. So in conclusion here, this is a solid little film for sure. I read that this was filmed during pandemic and having this small cast makes sense. It adds something to this parish that David is worried about. There is a simple story, but more about the performances. Skipper and Gardner play so well off each other with Stodkey and Gray pushing them to where they need to end up. I think this is a well-made film overall. I enjoyed my time here, and this is worth a viewing to horror as well as non-horror fans alike. Gives an interesting look at Christmas as well as Christians in my opinion. So my rating here for The Leech is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. Now there wasn't any more trivia, and I'm not going to go into a spoiler section here, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. Journey with a Cinephile. 
I would like to welcome you back. And then just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show, you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show, just let me know in that email. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And then for my next episode is going to be another winter year-end number 15 this time around. And I don't know what the 2022 release I'm going to be watching. So I'm going to be watching so many of them, and none of the ones that I'm looking at are Christmas-related. I'm going to figure out which one is going to be the highest rated, and that'll go ahead and be the featured review. So that'll be a bit of a surprise for you as well as for me. And then the older movie that I'm going to be watching is The White Reindeer. This is from 1952, so it allows me to do a trek through the twos. And this is kind of an interesting little film that I was reading about. I've heard good things, so I definitely wanted to give that one a watch at some point. Figured, no time like the present. And then I'm also going to have a bunch of mini-reviews, if you couldn't tell as well, of me watching new 2022 releases that I haven't seen as of yet, as well as to do some of my rewatches on top of that. Got a list of the ones that I kind of figured that were higher earlier in the year, so I figured they needed another go. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, so I will say that in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and do it and have a great time out there. Thank you so much for listening, and this is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 